As we come back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we actually are bringing it to a conclusion today, the second chapter. We've got one more to go as we uh, try to bring this letter to a close. But as we think about it, Paul has been writing this letter to some young Christians, infant Christians really, but Christians that have grown mightily in their faith very quickly and have become examples uh, to other believers. And Paul mentions all that in the first letter and we've looked at it at, at depth, but Uh, As we come to this second chapter, Paul's very concerned that they continue to be encouraged because there's a discouragement that could set in because they've encountered persecution and trial and tribulation. And they've had some misunderstanding of how that fits into the plan of God eschatologically. And so uh, they've begun to hear rumors that Christ has already returned and somehow they missed his parousia and all of that. And Paul wants them to understand that no, that's not happened, and there's some events that must first take place, and all that we've looked at. But he comes here to the end of this, and it's saying that he believes that they can stand in the day of challenge and test because they're found in Christ. You may remember two weeks ago our sermon was called Thanksgiving and Confidence. And uh, the Thanksgiving was to God, and the confidence was in God, right? Not in the Thessalonians. Paul. I did not say, I know you can stand because I've met you. I know uh, the metal with which you're made. He said, I know our God. I know how He strengthens believers. I know how He equips people to go beyond what they think is possible and to stand in difficult times. And so Paul has said all of that, and we come today uh, to these last two verses. Now, they're interesting because they're something of a prayer. They're something of a, a spoken hope a written hope that was to be spoken to the congregation. Uh, Different people, I noticed in the commentaries, word this differently. F.F. Bruce, the Anglican scholar, worded it a wish prayer. It's kind of like he's saying, this is what I hope for you. I want you to hear aloud what I'm praying to God on your behalf. So as we look at that, you'll notice we call it a glorious benediction because oftentimes that's what a benediction is. It's kind of a wish prayer, a spoken aloud prayer Uh, that uh, in the case of a benediction at the end of service, the minister is wishing upon the people of God, hoping uh, to God on behalf of his people. And so we see that here. And as we look at it today, I want to read it one more time. So let's do that. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. So I'm going to add this into the rotation of benedictions that we've had at the end of the services. I'll go ahead and tell you that up front. Uh, It's a good benediction. It says a lot in just two verses. In fact, uh, Spurgeon had a sermon on this called a complete benediction, or a comprehensive, I believe it was, a comprehensive benediction. Because it is. it, It says much in these two short verses. As we look at it today, I want us to focus on two points. First of all, a triune benediction. And second of all, an equipping benediction. Because ultimately, I think that is Paul's focus here. And so beginning first where the text begins, notice what Paul first says. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're not surprised to hear Paul talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the theme of his ministry. It's the person and work. Uh, for whom he is preaching, he is called, he is ministering constantly on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Christ's gospel. Paul says it's our gospel also in Christ. 
It's the gospel of God elsewhere. But again, we know that Christ is the theme of all the scriptures. From its very first verse to the very last verse. Christ is God's salvific plan throughout all time for His people. So Paul knows that. And wherever Paul goes, he preaches Christ. In fact, Paul says when he came to Corinth, I decided to know nothing amongst you, to talk about nothing, to preach nothing amongst you except this, Christ and Him crucified. So Paul is very much a Christian preacher, isn't he? He's all about Christ, all about our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. But what is surprising, or would be surprising if you were living in the days of Paul, is the way he words this. Now, it shouldn't surprise us, but sometimes we take for granted how shocking this would have been in Paul's day. He says, May our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and our God and Father. That's co-billing, isn't it? Co-equal billing. He doesn't put Christ as some unimportant uh, human servant. He puts Him on the same level. Now, this is not Paul trying to make a theological argument on subordination within the Godhead or something like that. Paul is talking about the cooperative work of our Heavenly Father and Christ our Savior. That they are cooperative in all these things. Then we speak of God sending His Son. We shouldn't get the idea that Christ reluctantly came. When we get the idea that they are on mission together. Yes, the Father sending His Son, but the Son freely coming. Desiring to ransom His people. And so again, we see here that Paul is trying to tell us this. That there is a cooperative mission going on. And in fact, it's amazing as you read through the Scriptures, you see it over and over again. Our Trinitarian God is at work always. But it is always a cooperative work. It's a very nature of the Trinity, isn't it? It's a a God who is Himself a community of persons. It's an amazing thing to think about, and it stretches our mind beyond their human limits. Blaise Pascal, the great mathematician, once said, us trying to understand God fully is like a dog trying to understand higher math. There's a point at which you realize your mind just doesn't go far enough to understand it. But we recognize the truth of it, that God was at work, not only the Father at work, but the Son at work. Now, Paul doesn't explicitly name the Holy Spirit in this text, but he's not absent. Because all of the operations that we're reading about here are conducted via the Holy Spirit. I don't want to jump too far ahead of myself here, but if you look for a moment at what Paul talks about, Who has loved us. God has loved us. He's given us everlasting consolation. Well, how does Paul in Romans 5 say the love of God enters our heart? It's shed abroad by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. What about consolation? Comfort, encouragement in times of need. Did Jesus not say it's better that I go away? If I go away, I will send another comforter to you, a paraclete? One who will give you comfort, who will encourage you, who will console you. So again, we see this image of all of the Trinity at work in this benediction. Who is it who will bring comfort? It's the Holy Spirit. He is the one working in our hearts to remind us of the promises God has made to us. So again, I think you look here again, you see a Trinitarian benediction here. 
as Paul is reminding us of the equipping work of the Holy Spirit. But, and we're going to be uh, short this morning, but I think it's important to look at this. As we move to our equipping benediction, as we approach our second point, we want to think about the equipping nature of the prayer here. Because Paul is speaking here of a prayer that he is making on behalf of his brothers and sisters that they might be equipped to stand in the day of battle. So it's an equipping prayer, an equipping wish prayer, an equipping benediction. And that's Paul's point, isn't it? He knows the Thessalonians need equipping. That's the entire point. Again, as I mentioned two weeks ago, his confidence is not in them. It's in God equipping them for the task at hand. And the task for them, their lot, if you might say, is a difficult one, a challenging one. It's a lot that many believers face throughout time. In fact, our brothers and sisters around the world face it daily. And that is persecution and trial and difficult times. Again, Paul says, my confidence is not in you, it's in God. It's in God equipping you to stand. These fellow believers have needs that God alone can meet. They can't meet them. They exceed their supply. But He knows who can resupply them, can increase their supply. C.S. Lewis spoke once of prayer. He says that prayer is like an outpost that's about to be overrun, calling to headquarters for reinforcements. That's what prayer is. It's us praying to the God who supplies all of our needs, saying, God, It'd be very easy to become uh, overwhelmed in this moment, to become discouraged in this moment, but you tell us, right, to not be discouraged, but by prayer and supplication and with thanksgiving, to simply make our requests be known to you. Can you imagine that military outpost being overrun, not calling to headquarters for reinforcements? It would make no sense if that's at your disposal, and yet, why are there so many Christians who fail to pray when they're overrun? Because, my friends, we need to recognize that God is desiring us to grow in our prayer lives and to fellowship and to call upon Him. So, again, Paul recognizes that there are needs that only God can meet. And so, here's a question that we often take for granted but shouldn't. Paul is saying, the infinite God of all the universe can supply your needs. Do we ever stop to ask the question why he would? Why would God bother with these Thessalonians? Why would God bother with me or with you? See, I know me, and I wonder that question sometimes, except Paul gives us the answer, doesn't he? And the same answer he gave us two weeks ago. Look at what he says in verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself... And our God and Father, now before he goes on to say what he's praying for them to do, he wants us to remember the basis on which he expects it to be done. Who has loved us. See, Paul says God has loved us. His people, he loves us. We're not praying out to someone who is cold toward us or indifferent toward us. We're calling out to our Heavenly Father and our Savior. And Paul wants to remember what that means. We turn back to the chapter we quoted just a moment ago, Romans chapter 5. Paul has much to say there about it. I want to read this whole section. It'll quote what I quoted earlier. But Paul 
speaking of the glories that we have in Christ, the, the transformative power of the gospel and what God is at work to do, he says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. That alone, glorious thing to be said. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of glory of God, the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Now here comes some of the best known verses in all the Bible, but ones that we ought to think about. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now before I move on, what a statement that is. You know, as human beings, we die for people who are our family. Uh, People die for their children or their parents or their spouse, close friends, people that have done good to them maybe. And that's what Paul says. Maybe a, a, a man might scarcely die for someone who's given them a good turn, been kind to them. But that isn't what Christ did. Christ died for the ungodly, for the unrighteous, for people who were sinning against him, blaspheming his name. Paul calls himself a blasphemer, the chief of sinners. And he said, God saved me by grace that I might be an example of just how amazing his grace is. Now Paul wants us to think about a question. Will God see this salvation through? Or will he just save us and drop us there? And Paul continues... He says, Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through Him. For when we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. What Paul is saying there is, think about this, When you were enemies and rebels toward God, He sent His Son to die for you. Now that you're reconciled to Him in His Son, He's going to take no further interest in you? Paul says it baffles logic. It baffles the mind. The God who demonstrated His love toward you in that He sent His Son to die in your stead. Now that you're reconciled and adopted, is going to see the mission through. He's going to sanctify you. He's going to grow you. He's going to equip you. He's going to supply your needs. And He will ultimately glorify you. There is no question about it. Because if while you were enemies, His precious, perfect Son died for you, you know then that He is going to see it all through. So don't doubt the love of God who sent His precious, unique, perfect, and beloved Son to die in your stead, all by His amazing grace. This is the same God who loves you and is equipping you. Paul says it's on that confidence that I believe that God will answer the prayer. I have a hope and even, I dare say, a confidence 
that God will answer this prayer because I believe it's a prayer made according to the will of God. And we know that God answers prayers that are made according to His will. And so, my friends, Paul says, I can have every confidence that God will equip you, that He will give you what you need to stand in these difficult days. So, here's a question we have. If we recognize that God is the one who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation, that's what Paul goes on to say. And by the way, we shouldn't pass over that, should we? Consolation. Consolation in our sorrows and our trials, in our difficult times. This is an important word. Consolation. It's a word we find several times in the New Testament. How about one of the great early Christians, Barnabas, the son of encouragement or consolation. One who is noted for being one who would take a brother by the arm and encourage him, steady him in difficult days. Did that for Paul when the Jerusalem church wanted nothing to do with Paul. He said, come with me. I'll lead you by the hand. I'll take you there. If you accept me, accept my brother. But you know, there's another place that we can think of consolation. We came out of the Christmas season. How about Luke 2.25? Where it tells us that Simeon was waiting for what? A promise that had been given? That he believed he would see, promised he would see before he died. He refers to this coming Christ, this Messiah, as the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel. Jesus Christ, the great consolation. And notice it's not just, by the way, love and consolation, but he's given us good hope. Good hope. A hope that does not fade easily. It's a good hope. A hope in which we can stand and have confidence and trust. The very thing that Paul is doing here, saying, I trust in this hope that God has given us. That He is going to equip you, that you are going to stand in this day because you're His. But it's not a hope that you have because of you. It's a hope you have in Christ and Him alone. How do we know that? Paul says, a good hope by grace. And my friends, we don't have to return back to Romans, but I hope you remember that Paul differentiates very strongly between works and grace. If it's a gift, it's not works. And if it's works, it's not a gift. You don't go to your employer and hope that you're going to get your wages and hope that he gives it to you as a present. You say, I earned my paycheck. But a bonus or a gift is something very different. You have no right to stand and say, you have to give this to me. You owe it to me. No, it's a gift. There is a strong difference between the two. And Paul says you have to understand that to understand salvation. It is a gift of God. Not something you can earn. If you can earn it, you cheapen it. My friends, again, Paul is talking about all these things. But again, this is the God who has loved us the God who consoles us, the God who gives us hope. And notice a good hope and an everlasting consolation, not one that's here today and gone tomorrow, but an everlasting consolation in Christ Jesus. So based on that amazing love, based on this amazing love and consolation and hope, what does Paul request for his brothers and sisters? 
Well, look at it. Just for a second, ignore that clause that describes the confidence Paul has that it will be done. He says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and our God and Father comfort your hearts. Comfort your hearts. And establish you in every good work and word and work. Now, as we think about this for a moment, he knows that they need this. They need comfort. They're struggling. It's not wrong to pray for comfort when we're struggling. We need to pray for one another when we know our brothers and sisters are struggling. I hope we're praying for our brothers and sisters that are homebound right now because of this pandemic. It has been a struggle. can't tell you the number of times I heard during Christmas, this is the first year I'm going to spend Christmas alone. Alone. A lot of heartbreak right now. We need to be praying for comfort for God's people. And Paul says if you're praying that, since it's God's will to comfort His people, you can have a confidence it will be answered. Because it's the will of God that His people be comforted even through difficult times. So Paul says, I pray that God will comfort your hearts in your trials and tribulations and difficulties as your heart is broken by people in the community who were once your friends who now reject you because now you're Christ. For the people who abuse you because you're a Christian. Remember, all these things were going on in Thessalonica. Paul says, I pray that your hearts will be comforted to know that you belong to the King of Kings. But there's something else Paul is praying for, isn't there? He's praying, listen to this again, that God would establish them in every good word and work. Now, comfort is something uh, for ourselves. We think about it as since I need to be comforted or maybe you need to be comforted. But Paul is also speaking of responsibility we have in Christ to watch what we do and say. Now there's a sense here first and foremost where you can talk about orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And that's not wrong to talk about. Right belief and right action. That's important. But I don't think that's the fullness of what Paul means here. I mean, he may call it that you might, Paul might agree with that wording, but I think too often we think about orthodoxy and orthopraxy as something only related to our church life. And I think Paul is talking about much more than that. He's saying in the face of opposition, in the face of persecution, in the face of despicable behavior, you're in control of how you respond. You're in control of how you behave, what you say, and what you do. You've been called to be ambassadors for Christ. Now that's something we say, but do we think about it? Do we think about it? If you were an ambassador for the president and you're making a fool of yourself in France or wherever you've been posted, I can assure you pretty soon you're going to get recalled. Did any of us doubt that? If somehow I get called upon to be an ambassador to uh, Japan or some nation and I go over there acting like a complete idiot, I can be assured that I'm going to be recalled from that post. They're going to say you're an embarrassment to your nation. But my friends... We represent Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, far higher than any nation. For all these nations rise and fall, here today, gone tomorrow. But our King reigns forevermore. Paul says, guard how you act. 
what you say, how you represent Him. Make sure you stand uh, in Him rightly, that you speak as He would have you speak and act as you would have, He would have you act. And so this is not just a prayer for the church. I think it is. Paul would say, be careful how you conduct yourself in the church, of course, but he's also speaking about how you conduct yourself in the marketplace, in the community, in your homes, around others who are watching. So Paul is praying that God would establish this particular people. I need to say that. This is a letter written to the Thessalonians. He's speaking about a particular people here. But I believe it's also the express will of God for all His people. It's not just the Thessalonians are expected to represent God well. It's all of us. We're all His people. We're all His ambassadors. And so we are called to represent Him well. So rejoice. I think Paul ultimately is saying rejoice, but I have a confidence that God is going to do the very things I'm asking of, despite the conditions of the world. We're serving a mighty God who has loved us and saved us. Our calling is to love Him and to serve Him and to do so in every good word and work by His grace. By His grace. My friends, again, I think even that would exceed our ability. But thank goodness the Scriptures promise us that the Holy Spirit is at work in us and on us. And there's some days we recognize it. We need it every day. But there's some days we recognize it more than others that need. And so Paul says, I'm praying for you, brothers. I'm praying for you that God would be working in just this way in you. Yes, I'm praying it that the Savior, the Father, and of course through the work of the Holy Spirit, the person and work of the Spirit at work in you, that this will happen. It's a triune benediction. So we close this morning. And I'm going to ask you to think about God's great love. Paul is talking about the confidence he has is based on God's love. God's love that is so great that he would send his perfect son to die on Calvary's cross for his people. The God who sent his son. The God who sent his son to die for us. And the son who then sent the spirit that the love of God might be shed abroad in our hearts. Now, you know every month we have a song of the month. And next month will be no different, but it will be, well, it'll be a little different because it'll be the first one not in our hymn book. And I asked the girls to um, do this next month, but I love this song. It's called My Redeemer's Love. And I want to close with just the lyrics to that song. My Redeemer's love is deeper than the depths of sin and hell. He who was enthroned in glory came to bring us to himself. My Redeemer's love is wider than the breach my sin had made. He reached down into my darkness. He alone has power to save. My Redeemer's love is stronger than my fiercest enemies. He will hold me in the tempest through the flood He carries me. My Redeemer's love will lead me through the deepest valley here. He will shepherd me and guide me. He will ever keep me near. To that, I can simply add amen.